Our reading of scripture today is from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 8 through 17. 8 through 17. Let's stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. Now I'm under obligation, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so... So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's different ways to get motivated to do your job, to do your duty, to do your work that you have to do in this world. There's one home builder, a guy who builds subdivisions, and he names the streets in his subdivisions after the employees that put in the hardest work on that project. You often wonder, where do they get these street names? That's how they get them. Jose and uh, Felipe and... uh, Jesus, that's, that's, that's the name of your streets in the future. Motivation is a big part of success. Money alone won't do it. I've got somebody in my family on Kim's side of the family, uh, and they're very successful at selling copiers, a couple of million dollars of copiers a year he has sold before. And he says it's not the money, it's the, it's the, it's the game. Of course, you can only say that after you've made $2 million one year. You get to say it's not the money. Sometimes it is a little bit about the money. There was uh, a teenager who was playing basketball outside and uh, with some of his friends, and one of them knocked his contact lens out of his eye. And so he didn't want his mom to find out because he had done this kind of thing before. And so he and his friends are on the ground trying to find it, okay? They probably stepped on it by now, but they don't care. As long as he can find it, he can at least say, Mom, I didn't lose it, because that's, that's bad. So he's there on the ground. He's there on the ground trying to find it. Finally, after half an hour, they can't find it. They go inside, and he tells his mom, Mom, I, I, I'm sorry. My friends and I were playing basketball, and I got eye jammed up, and I, I lost my contact lens. She goes out there, and a few minutes later, she comes back with it on her fingertip. And he's like, what? 
what, what magic is this? How did you do that? And she said, you were, look, you were looking for the wrong thing. She said, you were looking for a piece of plastic, and I was looking for $150. <laughs> It's, it's, it's motivations can change the way you look for things. It can change the way you do your work. Now, for Paul, Paul has an interesting position here. He's not only framing for us what the gospel is and therefore setting up our motivations to live the Christian life. He's also talking about himself. I told you guys that we were going to gradually work into the biographical information about Paul, and this is a big chunk of it here today because he opens up the door to his own soul and he says, here's why I'm doing this. Here's what's going on inside my heart that would make me want to visit you. Now, visiting people isn't hard, generally speaking, particularly the people in this congregation. I have loved visiting with you guys I, I visited with Larry and Jean this week. You got to know that was not a burden to visit with them. If you know how Jean cooks, it's no burden at all to visit with those guys. But here's the issue. When Paul says, I long to visit you guys in Rome, he had already begun to have an inkling of what awaited him in Rome. His unnatural early demise... He had already had hints that his future in Rome, that when he got there, what was waiting for him wasn't Gene's cooking. It was a sword. It was to meet in Caesar's household, in the courts of the Roman Empire, and preach the gospel and possibly be, be cut off about the time of doing the altar call. He knew that his future in Rome, he had already begun to suspect that the end of his life would be in Rome. And yet in here, he says, I long, verse 11, I long to see you. I have to say, I don't long to die. I don't long to do that. But Paul had so tied his love of the church, his love of the gospel, his love of the preached word going forth into Caesar's court, that he could say, the motivations are in me that I can't wait to see you. And, but there were a lot of other things he was going to see when he went to Rome that were not that fun. So the motivations that we discover today, that he enumerates for us today one by one, we can't overlook them. We are not at liberty by the scriptures and by what we know about Paul and his life and where he ended up dying, Rome. We are not at liberty to say, oh, that's interesting. How fascinating. What a nice little point you're making there in your message. These are the kind of motivations that will send you on perhaps your dark journey to glorify the Lord in a way that the world looks at and goes, are you crazy? The way Paul's own friends looked at him and as Agabus tied Paul's hands behind him and said, and everyone pled with him, don't go. Don't go. Don't do it. Don't start this journey. 
you may be called to go and do. Not in Africa somewhere, not someone dark and scary like China. You may be called to take up your cross and follow Christ and die to self right here. And you're going to need, and I'm going to need motivation to do that. The kind of motivations that would compel the Apostle Paul to go and die like his Savior did in a burst of redeemed obedience and suffering. As we look here at the text in verse, starting around verse 8, Paul means to enumerate for us what his motivations are. How do I get that? Well, those of you who are Bible students, you will look at the verse 8, and what is the word that you see uh, that is the beginning word in that sentence? First, okay? And so when someone says to you, first, it implies there's going to be a second, there's going to be a third, he's about to enumerate for you what's going on. And so, rather than just skipping over this as a general um, reading of his motivations, we want to slow down for a second. We can't get much slower in this series through Romans, but we're going to slow down even more. Number one, what do we see here? That's his motivations. The first thing we see is his faith and his hope. That their faith and their hope from the heart of the Roman Empire that expanded into the rest of the world, that made Paul want to be with them. That was part of what was motivating him to want to be in Rome with the saints is their faith, their hope, their love from the heart of the Roman Empire spreading out into the rest of the world. I got a chance to meet with a couple of missionaries this week. Um, Tim. I'll use Tim uh, as a name for the dad, uh, the father. They lived in the middle of, and indeed were the spark of a lot of the violent religious persecution that you heard about in the news, that you shared about on Facebook. One of our PCA missionaries, Tim, was right in the middle of all that. The 7,000 book library that the Chinese government burned, that was money that you gave toward, that went to Atlanta, that went this way, that way, and eventually ended up building libraries in China. The pastors that are in prison right now are pastors that your missionaries laid hands on for ministry. And it's the same pastors that when the president of China announced that he was deity, that he was the one where the buck stopped, it's those same pastors that are in prison today because they said even the the head of China is a sinner. That's what put them in prison, was saying that he was a sinner. I don't know about you, But those are the kind of people I want to hang out with. 
Those are the kind of bold people who are not afraid to get in the right kind of trouble. Those are the kind of folks who inspire me, who I want to spend time with, who I want to be like when I grow up. It's one thing to get persecuted for being a jerk, okay? We've all managed to pull that off. We've all managed to be a Jesus jerk whereby using our religion in sly ways, we were able to irritate people around us to the point to where they finally said something nasty to us, and then we were like, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. We've all managed to pull that off. That's not what I'm talking about. These guys, their faith and their hope and their love spreading out and expanding through the rest of the world in the midst of the hot spot of persecution... Paul was like, that's where I want to be. I want to be there with those kinds of folks. And it was that sort of motivation that drove him onward on his journey through shipwrecks and snake bites and everything else that came between him and his goal. Number two, in verse 10, he said, you fill my prayers. There's something about longing that's powerful. A beautiful song by the Civil Wars has a line in it that says, I miss you, but I don't know you. Talking about a future lover that they've been thinking about and wanting to have that special person in their Life. Our prayers act like that in that even the people we pray for that we don't know. When you've been praying for somebody that you don't know, that you haven't met, and you finally get together with them, isn't that a powerful feeling in, in your heart, in your gut? Do, doesn't it bring tears to your eyes when you see people that you've loved for so long but you've never met? When you have babies, you experience the same thing. You've been praying for these little babies. You've been wanting to meet them. You haven't met them yet, but you love them deeply. That's the kind of thing that Paul was experiencing in his heart as these people just filled his prayers, just haunted him with their names that he repeats in chapters 15 and 16, names that just spill off of his pen people he's been praying for over and over for God to be glorified in their possibly very short lives. That's motivating him because he wants to meet them before they're martyred. He wants to meet them before they meet their end at Caesar's hand. They fill his prayers and that has bonded his heart to them. And it's motivating him to take that one more step. Step by step by step as he heads forward in his mission to get the gospel throughout the world all the way to the heart of the Roman Empire. Number three, verse 12. He says, I've got something for you and you've got something for me. The gift of encouragement. There's some people that I enjoy hanging around, that I enjoy spending time with, that aren't encouraging people. 
exactly, but they still encourage me. If you, I get this a lot from children. Children are rarely going out of their way to encourage you, okay? They're not thinking outside themselves like that yet. Developmentally speaking, it's all about them. Nevertheless, after I spend time with children, I feel encouraged. I feel encouraged that God's not finished with us yet. <laughs> he's still giving us babies, and he's still uh, uh, growing us up. And I, and I have all these very warm, positive feelings about our future and about our present as I'm with your children. And it's not because they're going out of their way to be encouraging. It's because their very existence is encouraging. As the people in Rome looked to Paul, his very existence as a Pharisee who had hated God, who had been on a mission to extinguish Christianity, and now he's out there preaching the gospel. His very existence was an encouragement to them. They didn't have to meet him. They didn't have to talk to him. Just knowing he was breathing made them happy. Same thing for the Apostle Paul. He hadn't met them yet, but they were an encouragement to him because every day they worshipped the Lord, taking the Lord's Supper, meeting together in small groups in homes on the Lord's Day. Every time they did that, he knew that was just poking Satan in the eye. The, the emperor could call out that he was curious, that he was Lord, all he wanted to, as long as his friends were in the Colosseum with lions and tigers and bears, thank you, attacking them, as long as their last words were, Christ is curious, Christ is Lord. That was an encouragement to him. And they were an encouragement to one another, and that was a part of his core motivations that moved him forward in his Christian life. Number four that we see enumerated here is he says, I want to see more of your family and your city come to faith. I long to... See you that I may impart... Excuse me, mutual encouragement. Let me get the right text here. I have often intended to come to you in order that you may reap some harvest among you as well as among the Gentiles. He wants to see them and their friends come to faith. I had, had someone call me this, this week uh, and they were like, yeah, I've run into this fellow... I, Think, I think he's a believer, but he's run into some really hard times and he's just doubting everything now. And what do I say to him? What do I do? How do I help him out? I love getting those kinds of calls. But what I love even more is that I've got people in my congregation that are bumping into either Christians in great crisis or unbelievers in great crisis and they're not just saying, well, I hope that guy works things out. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for me to get to my next appointment. It's time for me 
to do X, Y, or Z. No, this is a woman who stopped what she was doing, took seriously the crisis that was happening before her, the crisis of faith that she saw happening in front of her, and said, I got to figure out how to do this. God's put me here for a reason. I got to figure out the right words to say to this man. Paul was intent on reaping a harvest amongst them, seeing the gospel flow forth with power from that community. And in verse 14, he talks about barbarians, and that takes us to our fifth point, that he wants to see Christ exalted. Part of his motivations for going is not only does he want to see more of the church receive the gospel, but he wants to see the Jews, Gentiles, and even the barbarians to come to know Christ. Who is he talking about there? Well, we, we all have kinds of classifications of people that we may have. I grew up in the deep south in the late 60s, early 70s, and we had certain classifications of people in the south at that time. It wasn't good. We see also in countries like India where there are different classes and class structures that exist. Here during the Roman Empire times, you would have, from the Jewish perspective, Jewish folks up here, you would have your Gentiles right here, some of those which might convert to Judaism and then were treated as not second-class citizens, but definitely not you know, the, the home-born, genetically Jewish folks. And then you had the Gentiles, and those were the, that was the derisive name that they gave to the Greeks and Romans who ran the world at that time. But it would also include folks uh, far and wide who maybe didn't have the same class or culture as the Gentiles or Romans, and they would refer to those, and the Romans would as well, as the, the barbarians. And so uh, your Goths and Visigoths and your folks from Africa, they would refer to them with that name. And often those are the ones who were enslaved uh, in the various campaigns, that the military campaigns they would go about. And Paul is saying here, I want every class of person to know Jesus. I want to reap a gospel harvest in every type of person that exists. This isn't a gospel just for Jews or just for the upper crushed Gentiles, but for every person, rich or poor, slave or free. I am eager to preach the gospel to everybody that's in Rome, Paul says in verse 15. That kind of everybody, anywhere, anytime, that sort of powerful motivation just smothered Paul's whole ministry. He could have said that about Ephesus. He could have said that about Corinth. He had no intention of just piecing out the gospel to just the people who were worthy, to just the people who were his kind. Oh, I've got my own ministry, Pastor, to just certain kinds of people. And I think 
that we should just be targeting certain kinds of people with the gospel because I just think we have a ministry to those that's more effective. We can dress it up any way we want to. But the moment you start eliminating certain people groups from your uh, gospel uh, targets list is a moment you need to look at your motivations and ask yourself why you're doing that. And usually it's not an answer that flatters you. It's not an answer that flatters me. So this leads us to an application question then. Why do we want this church to flourish? Why do we want to build a physical building on Lower Hill Road? Why do we go about our own personal missions? Why do we go to work every day? As Paul touches on motivations here, it naturally leads us to do some introspection. It's very easy to be motivated by the culturally acceptable motivations that are around us, that are just floating around in the air, that are floating around on the internet and on Facebook. We can just pick one out. Self-empowerment is one that just floats around out there. And, and, and if you will go on the internet, if you'll go to your workplace, if you'll go wherever you want to go and announce, I'm working on this new project. It can be a good project. It can be a bad one. And I'm doing so to work out my own self-esteem. You will achieve applause. You will be applauded. You'll be appreciated. question is, though, are, is that kind of motivation, particularly when taken by itself, is that the kind of motivation we see enumerated in Scripture, not only here, but in other places in Scripture? I don't know about you, but I got too much self-esteem. I think too highly of myself on most days. That's not low self-esteem. is rarely my, my problem. Don't, don't, be, don't feel awkward at all about taking me down a notch. Because I'm I may look short, but I'm not short on the inside. Uh, I met somebody once. I was working as the uh, internet guy at Ligadier Ministries, and I was running the forums there. And I went to Pittsburgh as a part of one of our conferences, and I was leading worship or something there. And I met a bunch of people from our internet forums. This was back in 1998 or so. And the first thing this woman named Jane said to me was, wow, you're a lot taller online. <laughs> she's shorter, not Jane, by the way. We, when you meet her in heaven, she's like 5'2". So she's got nothing to talk about. We have to think about our own motivations as we move forward because motivations matter because when we begin to bring in worldly motivations to even good things like building a church, 
it can spoil the whole thing. I might remind you of a story called the Tower of Babel as one example of that situation. You might remember that story. It was a nice building. It was a religious building. It was amongst uh, the most beautiful and large of its kind. And yet God looked down from heaven and laughed. And not that laugh that you want to hear from God. Not that laugh. That bad laugh. That chuckle. It's important to think about our motivations. The motivations that powered Paul to move forward into a life that was a life of that was destructive of his ego, destructive of his pleasure, destructive of his comfort, destructive of his don't you know who I am, I am a well-educated Pharisee sort of position in culture. Those kinds of motivations sent him forward into a life that I'll call the cruciform life. It's a relatively new word that's been tossed around, and I'm using it in a slightly different way than some others might use it. It means submitting to Christ's reshaping of ourselves through redemptive suffering until our life looks more like Jesus' life than the American dream. As we think about the theme from the last couple of weeks of rehearsing and preaching the gospel to us daily... One of the things that preaching the gospel to us daily does is it enables us to live this life, this cruciform life that receives suffering that comes our way and turns it into something that glorifies God. The gospel is not just the story of Christ and Him crucified as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, but it's also the story of you and me being crucified with Christ. And we're not being crucified with him as in we're also dying for the sins of his people. That's not the sense in which that's happening. So what does it mean? It means that in our union with Christ that I was crucified with him. And on that cross, the law's grip on me perished because if you die, the speeding laws here in Virginia no longer apply to you. They can't uh, get you for speeding if you're laying in the back of a hearse and they're going 85 down the road to get to, to, to wherever your burial site is. They can't pull you over for speeding because you're already outside the laws of Virginia. In that sense, you've died with Christ to the ability of the law to condemn you. And my old self, my shame, my love affair with the world all dies there on the cross. And so it's 
on that cross that I die, the law of Moses can no longer condemn me. I'm no longer a victim of the law's demands, and I'm no longer a slave to sin. And the actual working out of that daily in our lives, the working out of the implications of that is what we're calling the cruciform life this morning. It's where the gospel begins to shape me, more specifically in my suffering. For Paul, he was motivated to move forward in a life of suffering that gradually shaped him to where he ended up dead, killed by the Romans for his faith. God has united me to the crucified Christ in such a way that his gospel and the truth about he lived and died begins to shape me, begins to motivate me even in a way that the world cannot offer me anything like that. Because the world doesn't offer you fresh and new opportunities to suffer for it and thereby gain your allegiance. No, it's the opposite. The world offers you a new cell phone with a new version of Google that can now do this for you and now listens to you and orders things from Amazon for you before you even think you know it. Have you ever seen that stuff on Amazon that just pops up that you didn't know you wanted? But you do, and it knows that you do? That's the way the world works. I'm not against Amazon. I love Amazon, okay? I admit that right here from the pulpit. But the fact is, it serves as an excellent example of how the world works. It gives you what you naturally, what your flesh wants. And it just puts it on the ground and puts it on the ground, puts it on the ground, and you keep following it until you end up in a very bad place. The the motivations that are offered in the Scripture that Paul was following on the ground like those deer that you guys bait that are following the corn and stuff. The motivation that God was offering was something quite different. And it's something we've got to think about because it does not come naturally. It does not come naturally to our mind. I don't lay in the bed in in the morning when I first wake up thinking, boy, how is the Lord going to use suffering today to motivate me and conform my life to the image and identity of Jesus Christ? But that's precisely the kind of things that believers need to be thinking as they wake up in the morning. And that's precisely the kinds of things that will go through your mind if you're preaching the gospel to yourself daily. That's why Jesus, when he faced the cross and he was in the garden, bleeding out, crying, not my will, but yours be done. Because when he looked ahead of himself into his future... He felt that tension too. Thankfully, death and suffering isn't the end, but it's a beginning. After death 
and suffering come life in the gospel story of Jesus. He did not stay in the tomb. He rose from the grave. And the holes in his hand and in his side were healed. And he moved among men and, 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 and taught and met with people and showed himself to even the doubters. The death is not the end for us either. But the real payoff for us is found in the words of Jesus. That whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. That's what we're talking about this morning. That's what we're getting at this morning is Jesus' own words. And Paul is just unpacking Jesus' words for us in most of his writings. He's just exegeting Jesus' own words. Pastor Vincent, whose little book on the gospel I've been quoting quite frequently and that I'm very grateful for, says this. He says, The death that Christ died is the death to which I'm called... And the death to which I'm called is my entry point into the fullness of union with Christ. So as Christ looked ahead in his life to the cross, and he did not despise it, but he also let nothing come between him and it. And come what may, we pursue the cruciform life of dying to self daily and being raised to new life in Him. This is how Paul could say later, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Because as he lived, he was living out the redemptive suffering of Jesus as he spread the gospel, planted churches loving believers around him. And if he were to die, he'd be accomplishing the same thing because he knew that his death, he was pretty sure where his death was going to take place, bringing the gospel to the saints in Rome and to the very throne room of Caesar. Mark 8, 35, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, And whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What if that verse isn't directed to missionaries in dangerous situations? Yeah, but pastor, I've heard a lot of sermons preached and it it was preached at missions conference and stuff and it was trying to encourage young people and adults to go off and serve in Africa and China. I know. What if that's not the application that Jesus perhaps intended? What if it's not about becoming a missionary and dying in Africa? What if it's about becoming a missionary and dying in Powhatan? I don't mean some Second Amendment thing. I mean your ego. I mean your selfish interest in my selfish interest in being somebody, in being awesome, and that dying and instead pursuing a life that exalts Jesus in everything I do. 
What if that verse, losing my life, his life for my sake and for the gospel, is about living the cruciform life for Jesus daily and daily rehearsing his gospel promises. And as our own human craving-based life dies, that's when our life in Christ begins to flourish. And then we'll know what salvation was really promising. It wasn't, oh, heaven one day when I die. Though it is heaven one day when I die, that ain't it. There's a lot more to being a Christian than going to heaven when you die. And the promise of new life in Christ right now is a promise for all who will lay aside that old life and put it in the grave and let it die. Let those old motives, our old identity, die and walk in this new gospel-powered life into eternity. Let us pray.